Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Russian President Vladimir Putin figures prominently in American politics and the presidency of Donald Trump. But who is this guy really? At the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, I asked this very question of Masha Gessen, a journalist who wrote a book about him and fled Russia because of him. Masha Gessen, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So when we first met, it was back in, what, 2013? I think it was in the fall of 2013, yeah. Right. And I was moderating a panel with you and I think two other people, and we were talking about LGBT rights and what was happening outside of the United States and how, at that time, things seemed to be going great in the United States in terms of the advance of marriage equality, but around the world, there seemed to be a retrenchment. And You said in that meeting that at the time you and your wife were going to leave Russia and get your children out of Russia. Talk about what was happening in Russia at the time and why you made that decision to leave. So Russia was at the beginning of a period of political crackdown that has now lasted for seven years that began when Putin came back into office in 2012 amidst mass protests. And what he decided to do in response to the protests was queer bait the protesters. And so this anti-gay campaign became very much a centerpiece of the political crackdown. And queer people basically were standing in for everything, for the West, for the protesters, for Russia's enemies everywhere, for everything that made people uncomfortable about what happened since 1991, since the Soviet Union collapsed. The message that the Kremlin was broadcasting was, If you get rid of the gays, you can go back to an imaginary past and everything will be fine again. In my particular case, I was very out, had been publicly out for many, many years and was raising three children with my then partner and my oldest son is adopted. In the spring of 2013, there was an article in the biggest newspaper in the country in which the main sort of campaigner against gay people said, well, what the Americans want is to adopt Russian orphans and bring them up in perverted families like Masha Gessens, which was a very clear, very targeted threat that they were going to go after my adopted kid. And then in June 2013, two laws passed. One was very well publicized, and the other one went almost unnoticed by the international community. So the one that was very well publicized was the ban on homosexual propaganda. But a week later, they passed another law that banned adoptions by gay people or people from countries where same-sex marriage was legal. And that could be applied retroactively. It basically made my adoption illegal. Mm. And so before the law went into effect, five days after they voted for it, I got my son on a plane to the United States. So he was going to start boarding school in the U.S. while we got our stuff together Mm -hmm. and left. But, you know, the other two kids were biological. The threat to them wasn't as immediate, but obviously it was untenable for us to stay there. And so, I mean, you talked about how the government was queer baiting to set up. If you get rid of the gays, basically, you can go back to the rich, grand past of Russia. Who was the person behind that? I don't know that there was a mastermind who was sitting there thinking, oh, let's go after the gays. That will surely work. 
I think that these kinds of things work a little bit differently. They try a lot of things, a lot of hateful things, and they're extremely sensitive to what gets traction. I mean, now it's much easier to explain because now we have Trump. So look at him. Look at the incredible amount of crap that the man produces verbally. And while he seems to be almost unthinking in the way that he's sort of, uh, you know, in the way his mouth works, he's actually extremely sensitive to feedback. He knows what's getting traction. He feels what his audiences are responsive to. And he doubles down on those messages. You know, that's what he's done with immigrants. He's really doubled down on the fear of immigrants as criminals, as the people who take away Americans' jobs, as invaders, and on and on and on. That's very much the dynamic that was at work in Russia and still is, right? Mm -hmm. The Kremlin started broadcasting lots of hateful messages against the protesters. And the one that really stuck was the queerbaiting message, and they doubled down on it. So it wasn't necessarily that this was the grand design of Vladimir Putin, but this was something bigger than him, but he's the guy running the country. Talk more about who he is, because you've written back in 2012, one of your 10 books was The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. And that was in 2012. When you wrote that book, what was the message of that book? What were you trying to, the story you were telling? Well, it's very funny because now seven years later, it sounds ridiculous to say that the message of that book is the man is much scarier than you think. Because now I kind of want to backtrack on that and say, yes, he is much scarier than he, you thought he was in 2012. But actually, he's not, he's not the mastermind of all evil that you think he is in 2019. Hmm. But that book was, you know, it was, it, was, it was the first sort of history of Putin and Putinism. My argument in it was that he was, at the time, a lot of American Russia experts and journalists still felt like the jury was out on what was happening in Russia. Was it just a retrenchment on its way to democracy, or was it something else, right? And I was arguing that he was building an autocracy, and that in the first few years of his governance, so between 1999 and 2004, he dismantled every democratic advancement that Russia had made in the 1990s. And that from that point on, he had been engaged in creating a new regime, at that point an authoritarian regime. And in my later book, The Future is History, I argued that that regime actually morphed into a kind of mafia state that presides over a totalitarian society. With Vladimir Putin as As the, the mafia don. As the as don. As the capo, yeah. And so talk more about Putin, because the folks who are listening to this podcast, they know the name, they know he's the president of Russia. But where did he come from? What made you, when you wrote in 2012, a book that said this guy is scarier than you think? Who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he get to this point? Well, he came from the KGB. He was born to serve in the KGB. His father had served in the NKVD, which is a precursor agency to the KGB. He had ambitions of serving in the KGB from the time he was a teenager. When kids want to be cosmonauts, or at least marine generals, he wanted to be a spy. He wanted to be a secret agent. He wanted to rule from the shadows. He very much had ambitions of being invisible, but extremely powerful. So in a sense, what he has accomplished is the opposite of what he wanted to be. He is anything but invisible. But by the time he became the prime minister and then very quickly the acting president and then president of Russia in 1999-2000, 
he had no public record. He had no record as a public politician. He had spent most of his time as a secret agent. So that created this very strange situation where, on the one hand, everybody could project their visions onto him. Mm. He could be anything you wanted. And there were people who were really tired of Yeltsin, who was erratic, who was a drunk, who was often an embarrassment. And so to those people, Putin looked like the promise of something saner and stabler and more European. You know, he wore good suits. <laughs> you know, he didn't look like the Russian bear that Yeltsin looked like. There were people who really missed the Soviet Union. There were people who felt profoundly traumatized by the 90s and by the transformations of the country. And so they saw in him a promise of returning to the Soviet Union because he came from the KGB and because his rhetoric was not as you know, bombastically democratic as Yeltsin's. But on the other hand, he also was able to create his own record. He was able to tell people exactly how he wanted to be seen, which if you think about it for a second is an extraordinary thing, right? To get a politician, the president of a country who nobody knows anything about, <laughs> and he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you who I am. And so he commissioned an official biography. He was interviewed for it by three journalists on six occasions. And it's fascinating to see what he wanted people to know about him. He wanted to know people that he was a thug. He wanted people to know that he was vengeful, that he had an uncontrollable temper. These are the kinds of stories that he told about himself and that he had his friends and his wife tell about him. He didn't tell any stories about his political ambition or his vision for the future or anything like that. But he told stories about being a thug. How does one tell a story about being a thug while running for president of the country? You know, I mean, they have the appearance of these kinds of childhood stories, right? These are the fights that he got into in grade school, and these are the fights that he got into in high school. This is the fight that he actually picked when he was already a young KGB agent, risking his entire career to beat a guy up because of a perceived slight at a bus stop. Mm. Pause and think about it for a second. When you could create a life and an image out of whole cloth, why would you choose that? Why would you choose to tell people that at the age of, I believe, 25, you chose to risk your entire career to beat up a guy who didn't know you had martial arts training at a bus stop in Leningrad? I thought it was significant, mm -hmm. right? I thought he was actually telling us who he is. Maya Angelou's famous when, when someone tells you who they are the first time, believe them. Exactly. Yeah. That's what he was doing. And I think that people in Russia really didn't. People in Russia really wanted to see those as kind of stories of adventurous youth, but not stories of who he was. Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated because what I get from your recounting of the stories that he was telling that portrayed him as a thug sort of goes back to what you were talking about, the people of Russia being traumatized by the 90s and sort of yearning for the Soviet Union, a time of great strength. That's what I'm getting Absolutely. from those stories. You can't separate the 90s and how traumatized people were by the 90s from how traumatized people were by totalitarianism, right? And I think that that's a mistake that people often make when talking about Russia. Terrible things happened to people in the 90s, and that's where they were traumatized. Well, I would tell the story a little differently. Terrible things happened to Russians over the course of three generations because of totalitarianism. And because of that, the 90s were particularly difficult because an entire society had evolved to survive in the conditions of state terror, which made it 
really unfit for surviving in conditions of starting to be open, conditions of opportunity, conditions of exchange of opinion and the creation of a public sphere. All of those things were antithetical to everything that people had grown up to be able to live with. And is it that they didn't trust it or that the idea of freedom was so foreign and wild that they just couldn't handle it? You know, it's not so much the idea of freedom. I think that the idea of freedom is probably appealing to most people. It's the lived reality of freedom, right? Freedom is instability. Freedom is a huge burden of responsibility. Freedom is having to figure out who you're going to be in the world. And if you've never had the opportunity to do that, that can feel unbearable. Can we talk about, before we move into the present day, that extraordinary meeting between President George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin, where President Bush said famously, and I'm paraphrasing, I had a great conversation with Vladimir and great discussion, and I looked into his eyes and I could see his soul. And this is one of those moments where it seems like every president tries to have a reset with Russia, and in particular with Vladimir Putin. What did President Bush get wrong? Well, in the words of Hillary Clinton, what he got wrong is that Putin is from the KGB. He doesn't have a soul. (laughs) But... I'm a little puzzled by that account, and not just by that account, but by many different accounts of early Putin. There were a lot of people who came from their first meeting with Putin absolutely charmed. And sort of a conventional wisdom explanation for that is that he was trained to be a recruiter. I didn't get to meet him in person until 2012. And I did not come away charmed. I actually came away disappointed in a very strange way, right? I expected Mm. to see something more than what I had written about in my book, something three-dimensional. And there was just nothing there, just like nothing. And I don't know whether after 12 years in power, he had simply lost touch or he had lost his touch. He didn't know how to charm people anymore or whether he was never particularly charming, but the allure of power, the allure mm. of you know being buddy-buddy with a president of Russia. Maybe that was enough to so charm you met George W. Vladimir Bush Putin after you wrote your book or in the process of writing <laughs> I met book? him after I wrote the book. That's the hysterical part. Did he and see the book and said, let me meet this person? He didn't know about the existence of the book. Mm. Because, you know, for him to know about the existence of the book, someone would have had to tell him about the book. And that wouldn't have gone over well. Nobody wants to be that person. <laughs> And so then how did you how did you find yourself It's meeting? a very bizarre story. I was the editor of a popular science magazine in Moscow and it was actually the biggest quality magazine in the country and Putin really liked the magazine. And because he liked it so much, he wanted us to send a reporter on his adventure hang gliding with the Siberian cranes. And my publisher asked me to do that and I said no. And it's not like I was being particularly brave. I actually said, you know, I was being really pragmatic. I said, look, if we send a reporter, the reporter is going to see something that you don't want to the magazine. So let's just not send a reporter. We're a popular science magazine. We don't have to do this. I have a story commissioned on this repopulation project for the Siberian cranes. Let's do this without Putin. And he said, well, how about we send a reporter, but then we don't have to publish anything. I said, well, that I can't do. Right. <laughs> like, I can not send a reporter, but I can't ethically send a reporter and then not publish what the reporter right. learns. So just let's just stay out of trouble. And he fired me. 
And when he fired me, it became media news in Moscow at the time that was still possible. Now, you probably wouldn't read about it. And Putin called me because he really liked the magazine. And so he thought that the publisher had overreacted. So he wanted to offer me my job back. (laughs) Wait, stop. The president of the country found out you got fired and then called you to give you your job back. Right. Which it wasn't his to give, but he doesn't realize that because he's the mafia boss. Like everything is his to give or take away. And that's true. If he had called the publisher and said, fire her, the publisher would have fired me. Right. Right. So instead, he called me and he called the publisher and was like going into the principal's office. We sat across the table from each other and we had a conversation. And then he said, "Okay, offer her her job back. Holy smokes. With the. Oh, my God. And so he offered you a job. Did you take the job? You No. No. So you're retelling that story in terms of the president of the country calling an editor and you know, offering back something he doesn't have the power to, although technically didn't have the power, but clearly was able to do it, right. brings me to the current occupant of the White House. The parallels exactly. between the two are incredible. So let's go from... President George W. Bush meeting with Vladimir Putin to President Donald Trump and the famous, infamous press conference the two of them did after their summit in Helsinki, where I don't even know where to begin with the number of sort of rhetorical atrocities that happen during that press conference. At this point, it's been so long. It's been, what, nearly a year since the press conference. Mm -hmm. It feels like 15 years in old media time, right? Right. But as I recall, what was really amazing about that press conference was actually incompetence of the current White House administration and the current White House press people. They didn't stage the press conference. This press conference was staged entirely by Russians. Everything about it, with the possible exception, the Russians have had their way completely. They would have had uh, all the questions scripted ahead of time. Mm -hmm. As it was, they couldn't get the Americans to submit their scripted questions ahead of time. But everything else, you know, was completely controlled by the Russians. And of course, I remember Trump's performance was mortifying. But I also remember that Putin used that press conference to perform one of his signature tricks that I find really extraordinary when he suddenly tells the truth, almost unbidden. Mm -hmm. Remember when he said, of course, we wanted him to win? Yeah. First of all, it wasn't in response to a question, right? The question was something entirely different. I can't remember now what it was. But he said, of course we wanted him to win. After more than a year of denying that Russia had had any stake in the American election. And it's that kind of lying, which he performs often. He did the same thing with the Russian troops in Ukraine, when for a year and a half, he would say, there are no Russian troops in Ukraine, there are no Russian troops in Ukraine. And suddenly he said, of course we're in Ukraine. And that communicates to you that, well, first of all, you're an idiot for having believed him before. (laughs) Second, would you be an idiot to believe him now? A third, whether or not you're an idiot, he is completely in control of whatever reality is available to you. If he decides to say that this is the case because he's got the bigger microphone, because you have no choice but to engage with what he's saying, that's going to be the narrative. Wow. I mean, you just gave me a lot here to think about because, again... We see President Trump trying to do that, not trying, he does it Mm -hmm. every day, several times a day, to the point of saying the sky is blue and then denying he said it was blue. And then when everyone says, 
well, we've got the tape saying you said it was blue and still saying, nope, I never said it. Right. Can you talk about more parallels you see between Trump and Putin? And is it true to your mind, this sort of conventional wisdom, at least among the people I've talked to, that President Trump was basically recruited by Vladimir Putin, that he is an he meaning Trump is an unwitting Russian asset. You know, I really hate talking about things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, I mean, I think that as journalists, we should not talk about things that we don't know, that we don't have facts to establish. But also, there is a kind of journalism, and unfortunately, it's the kind of journalism that we have seen more and more of in the last couple of years since Trump got elected, where it's the unseen, the secret, the thing that can be revealed if you connect the dots that becomes more important than what we can all see. I think it's much more useful and ultimately informative to focus on the things that actually we can all see. So we can't see whether Trump was recruited or whether he is an asset, and I would argue it doesn't matter. What matters is that he has a sincere admiration for Vladimir Putin. What matters is that he wants to be Putin, if he could be in this country. And what matters is that they do have a lot of things in common. I mean, obviously... There are major things that differentiate them from one another. One is that they're emotionally completely different. Trump is all affect. He's all raw emotion. Putin actually prides himself on being inscrutable, which I don't think he is, but that's his idea of himself. Putin comes from a completely different political culture, and he inherited a completely different political system. right? And that's very important. It's an important distinction, and it's important for us to keep in mind what we have to protect from Trump. It is the political system and it is the political culture, which he's hell-bent on destroying. But what they do have in common is the way they lie, right? And I would argue that they lie not like most people lie, which is to get you to believe something that you don't already believe, but to tell you that they are more powerful. It's basically, it's like the bully who keeps saying, I can say whatever I want and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's, you know, that's why that experience that we keep having with Trump is so infuriating. The, the sky is blue. I didn't say the sky is blue. Yeah, well, of course the sky is blue. Yes, I, this is why I have fired James Comey. Well, of course I have fired James Comey because of Russia. <laughs> that's the exact equivalent of the thing that I was describing mm-hmm. that Putin does. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of idiot were you to believe me the first time? That's a power play. And it continues to establish that reality, according to Trump, is what we all have to inhabit whether or not we want to, and whether or not it is in any way rooted in fact. I think another thing that they share is that they use their political office for personal gain, and they see nothing wrong with it. In fact, that's why they're in office. That's the purpose of the office. And they have no use for government. They have no use for politics. They have extreme disdain for the very idea of government. When Trump was saying, drain the swamp, he didn't mean make government better. He just meant get rid of the whole thing. And I think that that's something that they really share. A couple of things. On your first point, how they try to get us to exist within the reality that they have created in the American form of government and American society, is it even possible for our institutions, whether the political institutions or even media, the free press, is it even possible for us to push back against that reality? Of course, it's possible. It's just a question of how successful we are, right? 
I mean, I think that in some ways the Trump presidency has been the American media's finest hour in a long, long time. In some ways, not so much. I think that in terms of investigative journalism, in not just how much has been done and what has been uncovered, but how it's been done, right? The new models of collaboration, new sort of ways of mobilizing media. That's been amazing. Things like what The Post has done, what The Times has done, what ProPublica or like a podcast like Trump Inc., which is my absolute favorite mm -hmm. ongoing investigation into Trump has done. You know, that's extraordinary. I think that our kind of day-to-day -day political coverage is not generally our finest hour. And, you know, we're entrapped by covering Trump. Covering Trump means covering things he says. Every time we cover something he says, we normalize it in some way. I think that we have to acknowledge that there's no way to avoid the trap. We have to think about how to minimize the damage, how to create enough context, how to tell the stories in such a way that we don't fall into the biggest trap that he sets all the time, which is arguing about facts. So I'm like, I'm really not a fan with all due respect and apologies to the Post. And I'm really of not a fan checker? of the fact-checking genre of journalism. Why not? That runs counter to the way most people think now that, oh my God, thank God we have a fact-checker out there who is keeping tabs on how many lies, misleading statements that he makes and that we actually have a number that we can point to. But And I was thinking that that's a good thing. Someone's paying attention. But you're taking the opposite view. I mean, it's, of course it's good to pay attention. But as journalism... It creates the genre of arguing about facts. Every time Trump says something and we respond by saying the opposite, it serves to establish that there are two ways to think about this, mm. the Trump way and the right way. Facts are not subject to argument. Opinions are subject to argument. Facts are facts. So I think there has to be a different way to tell the story of Trumpian lies, something that is not naked fact-checking, something that involves a lot more depth and context. Then how should the regular person, not journalists like us, but who's interested, how does the regular person push back against the reality Trump is trying to get us to exist in? Well, I mean, the regular person should be engaged in critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I don't know what else to recommend the regular person as a kind of household antidote to Trump. I mean, I think that there are lots of things that can be done. And by critical thinking, I mean, where I think Democrats are failing a lot of the time, and many journalists are also failing a lot of the time, is keeping us away from the Trumpian drift in language and discourse. Hmm. And immigration, of course, is the best example of that, where we, within less than two years into the Trump presidency, were fully into an argument about whether the wall is a cost-effective way of protecting the border. When Trump gave his wall speech with Nancy Pelosi's and Chuck Schumer's rebuttal, the rebuttal was not based on moral grounds. It was cost arguments, effectiveness arguments. I mean, that is such a huge distance that we have traveled from where we were during the campaign when, do you remember that when Trump was talking about the wall, people were saying, well, disregard that. I mean, that's ridiculous. That is so obviously absurd that we shouldn't even be thinking about that. And not, not only are we thinking about it, we're actually negotiating on cost. We're actually negotiating on whether it should be concrete or steel. Mm -hmm. And what, is it going to be better if it's chicken wire? 
I mean, that is not the conversation we should be having. And where I think critical thinking really needs to be activated is in that. Like, why are we even talking about this? What is the premise of this conversation that needs to be questioned? From your vantage point as someone who has been watching America, living in America, an observer of our culture, society, institutions, and given where you've come from, can American democracy, can its institutions survive a President Trump? Well, the answer is we don't know. We don't know. We've never seen this before. We have seen people like Trump before. We have seen moments like this moment of extreme instability and extreme polarization and the extreme appeal of an autocrat. You know, we've seen global moments like that before. That didn't go very well for humanity last time we saw a global moment like Mm -hmm. that. But it's not the 1930s. It's not the 1930s, if only because the 1930s have already happened. And we have the chance to have learned from history. The media that we have in this country and civil society that we have in this country is unlike media or civil society that the world has ever known before. Are we strong enough as media and as civil society? And I'm you know, much less excited or certain about our formal institutions than I am about media, media and civil society. I think institutions cave very quickly. But are we strong enough to turn this moment of political crisis into a moment of opportunity rather than the moment of our final descent? And we don't know the answer. Does it surprise you that you can't definitively say, yes, democracy can survive Trump? Because oh, no. to, to, <laughs> oh, it doesn't? It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, look, I don't think it's my job to definitively say anything. You know, as journalists, we like to say things definitively, but I think we need to get out of that habit. Hmm. I understand where you're coming from. I want to bring you back to something when I asked you about your book from 2012, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, where I think you said when you were writing that book, you wanted to show like this guy is scarier than you think. But if I heard you correctly, you said now looking at the book seven years later, he's not as scary. Oh, he's every bit as scary as the guy in the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's just the message of the book at the time was pay attention. Uh-huh. And I was like, come on, stop talking about Putin. Talk about what's going on here and now. And actually, one of the strongest arguments that I have heard in favor of this position, I've been arguing for more than two years now, actually, since the Democrats started talking about how Trump was a Russian agent in the summer of 2016. I have been arguing that we have to pay attention to the tens of millions of Americans who are voting for him and not the Russians. Because whether Russian interference made a difference to the tune of 77,000 votes that gave him the presidency is ultimately a footnote in history. What's important is that 60 million Americans voted for him. And most of them certainly didn't do it because of Russia. And the strongest argument in favor that I have heard since was Trump's re-election rally recently. Mm-hmm. When... He, addressing the crowd, he said he was talking about the Russia investigation. He said, they're trying to take your votes away. They're trying to say it's Russia. They're trying to say it's not you. And he's right. That obsession with Russian interference serves to obscure the reasons and the fact that 60 million Americans voted for Trump. 
Why do you think 60 million voters voted for Trump? I think they had different reasons, but I think that an overwhelming reason for most of them was extreme economic and social anxiety. You know, and some of it is extremely unpretty. Some of it is race anxiety. But it's still extreme economic and social anxiety and the sense that the system hasn't worked for them. That, And especially this is, I think, true of the Obama-Trump voters, who by some estimates, number as many as 5 million. People who feel desperate for change, people who have sincerely participated in the system and honestly voted their pocketbooks for generations and have seen their lives get worse and worse. And then Trump comes along and says, I can be the grenade you throw at the system. And they're like, okay, it's as good as any other. That is a really terrifying diagnosis of the American political system and where our democracy was before Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what we need to be looking at. And so I'm with you about the people who voted for Trump in November of 2016. But since then, Mm -hmm. we have seen a lot of things that sort of belied this explanation that it was economic anxiety. And for me, the key moment was Charlottesville and how he embraced white supremacy, said Nazis are very fine people, tried to bring some equivalence on both sides. And another touchstone was the closing argument of the 2018 midterm elections, where he spent two weeks, several times every day with wildly racist and xenophobic closing arguments for Senate races in red states. And not only did the Republicans hang on to the Senate, they gained two seats with the president of the United States with an openly racist and xenophobic argument. And so given that and you know, push back, please, if you don't agree, is that what's going on here, do you think, in the United States, more so than economic anxiety? I don't think you can separate the two. I think that... And again, we can go back to the 1930s in Europe and in this country to see how economic anxiety foments hate without talking about extreme inequality, without talking about poverty in this country. We can't also talk about hate. And I'm not for one second saying that these are good people who voted for Trump, right? This is not my position. I'm not for one second saying that voting for Trump is justifiable in 2016 or voting for his candidates in 2018 or in 2020, as many people are going to do. What I'm saying is that there's, I actually learned this term when I was writing a book about the Boston bombers, another couple of people for whom I have absolutely no sympathy. But I learned this term from people who study the far right, and the term is strategic empathy. It's not the kind of condescending empathy that we sometimes practice in journalism, where we go to a red state and say, oh... If only they had better information, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have done it. But really, they're fine people who are misled into voting for Trump. I don't think so at all. I don't think they're fine people. I don't think that if they had better information, they wouldn't have voted for him. I think the situation is actually much more dire. But I think the general sense of rootlessness, instability, and extreme anxiety plays a huge role in creating the conditions for Trump candidacy and the Trump victory. So to finish up, what are the three things that scare you about Vladimir Putin? Three things that scare me. 
that's a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> or if there's only one, I'll take it. You know, I think that, no, actually, I think there are two things that scare me about Vladimir Putin, and they're the exact same things that scare me about Trump. One is that he has total disregard for human life. He has no civic or historic ambition. He only wants to stay in power. And if that means at some point blowing up the world or half the world or a third of the world, well, that's just what has to be done. And the other thing that scares me about him is that he's not smart, informed, or curious. That's it. <laughs> it's not scary enough, Jonathan. Yeah, no, that's I was stunned into silence. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think that part of what of the Putin fantasy that has taken hold in the United States over the last couple of years is that he is smart and that he is informed. And I think that there is a kind of comfort in that, that at least if, and again, it's very funny, when I wrote the 2012 book about Putin, the one criticism that surfaced in a lot of reviews was, she says that he is not smart or educated, but nobody gets to be this powerful while being an idiot. Now we finally know better <laughs> in, in this country. But there's this fantasy that even if we have a bumbling idiot in the White House, there's monstrous, evil, villainous but intelligent person in the Kremlin. And that's not true. There's a very different kind of similarly uninformed, uncurious, bumbling idiot in the Kremlin. And with that, going to leave it there. Masha Gessen, staff writer with The New Yorker, author of The Futurist History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, author of The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, and eight other books. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 